Western Europe, Chapters 11 and 12, of Memoirs of a Revolutionist, Volume 2, by Peter Kropotkin. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Eelin. We settled once more in Thonon, taking lodgings with our former hostess, Madame Sansot, a brother of my wife, who was dying of consumption and had come to Switzerland, joined us. I never saw such numbers of Russian spies as during the two months that I remained at Thonon. To begin with, as soon as we had engaged lodgings, a suspicious character who gave himself out for an Englishman took the other part of the house. Flocks, literally flocks of Russian spies besieged the house, seeking admission under all possible pretexts, or simply tramping in pairs, trios, and quartets in front of the house. I can imagine what wonderful reports they wrote. A spy must report. If he should merely say that he has stood for a week in the street without noticing anything mysterious, he would soon be put on the half-pay list or dismissed. It was then the golden age of the Russian secret police. Ignatieff's policy had borne fruit. There were two or three bodies of police competing with one another, each having any amount of money at their disposal, and carrying on the boldest intrigues. Colonel Sudeikin, for instance, chief of one of the branches, plotting with a certain Degayev, who, after all, killed him, denounced Ignatieff's agents to the revolutionists, and offered to the terrorists all facilities for killing the Minister of the Interior, Count Tolstoy, and the Grand Duke Vladimir, adding that he himself would then be nominated Minister of the Interior, with dictatorial powers, and the Tsar would be entirely in his hands. This activity of the Russian police culminated, later on, in the kidnapping of the Prince of Battenberg from Bulgaria. The French police, also, were on the alert. The question, what is he doing at Thonon, worried them. I continued to edit Le Revolt, and wrote articles for the Encyclopaedia Britannica and the Newcastle Chronicle. But what reports could be made out of that? One day, the local gendarme paid a visit to my landlady. He had heard from the street the rattling of some machine, and wished to report that I had in the house a secret printing press. So he came in my absence and asked the landlady to show him the press. She replied that there was none, and suggested that perhaps the gendarme had overheard the noise of her sewing machine. But he would not be convinced by so prosaic an explanation and actually compelled the landlady to use the machine, while he listened inside the house and outside, to make sure that the rattling he had heard was the same. "'What is he doing all day?' he asked the landlady. "'He writes. He cannot write all day long. He saws wood in the garden at midday, and he takes walks every afternoon between four and five. It was November. "'Ah, that's it. When the dusk is coming on. À la tombée de la nuit.' and he wrote in his notebook, never goes out except at dusk. I could not well explain at that time this special attention of the Russian spies, but it must have had some connection with the following. When Ignatieff was nominated prime minister, advised by the ex-prefect of Paris, Andrieux, he hit on a new plan. He sent a swarm of his agents into Switzerland, and one of them undertook the publication of a paper which slightly advocated the extension of provincial self-government in Russia, but whose chief purpose was to combat the revolutionists, 
and to rally to its standard those of the refugees who did not sympathize with terrorism. This was certainly a means of sowing division. Then, when nearly all the members of the executive committee had been arrested in Russia, and a couple of them had taken refuge at Paris, Ignatiev sent an agent to Paris to offer an armistice. He promised that there should be no further executions on account of the plots during the reign of Alexander II, even if those who had escaped arrest fell into the hands of the government, that Chernyshevsky should be released from Siberia, and that a commission should be nominated to revise the cases of all those who had been exiled to Siberia without trial. He asked the executive committee to promise to make no attempts against the Tsar's life until his coronation was over. Perhaps the reforms in favor of the peasants, which Alexander III intended to make, were also mentioned. The agreement was made at Paris, and was kept on both sides. The terrorists suspended hostilities. Nobody was executed for complicity in the former conspiracies. Those who were arrested later on under this indictment were immured in the Russian Bastille at Schlüsselburg, where nothing was heard of them for fifteen years, and where most of them still are. Chernyshevsky was brought back from Siberia and ordered to stay at Astrakhan, where he was severed from all connection with the intellectual world of Russia and soon died. A commission went through Siberia, releasing some of the exiles, and specifying terms of exile for the reminder. My brother Alexander received from it an additional five years. While I was at London, in 1882, I was also told one day that a man who pretended to be a bona fide agent of the Russian government, and could prove it, wanted to enter into negotiations with me. Tell him that if he comes to my house I will throw him down the staircase, was my reply. The consequence of it was, I suppose, that while Ignatiev considered the Tsar guaranteed from the attacks of the executive committee, he thought that the anarchists might make some attempt, and wanted therefore to have me out of the way. Chapter 12 The anarchist movement had taken a considerable development in France during the years 1881 and 1882. It was generally believed that the French mind was hostile to communism, and within the International Workingmen's Association collectivism was preached instead. Collectivism meant, then, the possession of the instruments of production in common, each separate group having, however, to settle for itself whether the consumption of produce should be on individualistic or communistic lines. In reality, the French mind was hostile only to the monastic communism, to the phalanstelle of the old schools. When the Jura Federation, at its Congress of 1880, boldly declared itself anarchist-communist, that is, in favor of free communism, anarchism won wide sympathy in France. Our paper began to spread in that country, Letters were exchanged in great numbers with French workers, and an anarchist movement of importance rapidly developed at Paris and in some of the provinces, especially in the Lyon region. When I crossed France in 1881, on my way from Thonon to London, I visited Lyon, Saint-Étienne, and Vienne, lecturing there, and I found in these cities a considerable number of workers ready to accept our ideas. By the end of 1882, a terrible crisis prevailed in the Lyon region. 
the silk industry was paralyzed and the misery among the weavers so great that crowds of children stood every morning at the gates of the barracks where the soldiers gave away what they could spare of their bread and soup this was the beginning of the popularity of general boulanger who had permitted this distribution of food the miners of the region were also in a very precarious state i knew that there was a great deal of fermentation but during the eleven months i had stayed at london i had lost close contact with the french movement a few weeks after i returned to thonon i learned from the papers that the miners of monceau le mine incensed at the vexations of the ultra-catholic owners of the mines had begun a sort of movement they were holding secret meetings talking of a general strike the stone crosses erected on all the roads round the mines were thrown down or blown up by dynamite cartridges which are largely used by the miners in underground work and often remain in their possession the agitation at lyon also took a more violent character the anarchists who were rather numerous in the city allowed no meeting of the opportunist politicians to be held without obtaining a hearing for themselves storming the platform as a last resource they brought forward resolutions to the effect that the mines and all necessaries for production as well as the dwelling-houses ought to be owned by the nation and these resolutions were carried with enthusiasm to the horror of the middle classes the feeling among the workers was growing every day against the opportunist town councillors and political leaders as also against the press who made light of a very acute crisis and undertook nothing to relieve the widespread misery as is usual at such times the fury of the poorer people turned especially against the places of amusement and debauch which became only the more conspicuous in times of desolation and misery as they impersonate for the worker the egotism and dissoluteness of the wealthier classes a place particularly hated by the workers was the underground cafe at the theatre belcourt which remained open all night and where in the small hours of the morning one could see newspaper men and politicians feasting and drinking in company with gay women not a meeting was held but some menacing allusion was made to that cafe and one night a dynamite cartridge was exploded in it by an unknown hand a socialist workingman who was occasionally there jumped to blow out the lighted fuse of the cartridge and was killed while a few of the feasting politicians were slightly wounded next day a dynamite cartridge was exploded at the doors of a recruiting bureau and it was said that the anarchists intended to blow up the huge statue of the virgin which stands on one of the hills of lyon one must have lived at lyon or in its neighbourhood to realise the extent to which the population and the schools are still in the hands of the catholic clergy and to understand the hatred that the male portion of the population feel toward the clergy a panic now seized the wealthier classes of lyon some sixty anarchists all workers and only one middle-class man emile gautier who was on a lecturing tour in the region were arrested the lyon papers undertook at the same time to incite the government to arrest me representing me as the leader of the agitation who had come from england in order to direct the movement russian spies began to parade again in conspicuous numbers in our small town almost every day i received letters evidently written by spies of the international police mentioning some dynamite plot 
or mysteriously announcing that consignments of dynamite had been shipped to me. I made quite a collection of these letters, writing on each of them Police Internationale, and they were taken away by the police when they made a search in my house. But they did not dare to produce these letters in court, nor did they ever restore them to me. In December, the house where I stayed was searched in Russian fashion, and my wife, who was going to Geneva, was arrested at the station in Thonon and also searched. But, of course, nothing was found to compromise me or anyone else. Ten days passed, during which I was quite free to go away, if I had wished to do so. I received several letters advising me to disappear, one of them from an unknown Russian friend, perhaps a member of the diplomatic staff, who seemed to have known me, and who wrote that I must leave at once, because otherwise I should be the first victim of an extradition treaty which was about to be concluded between France and Russia. I remained where I was, and when the Times inserted a telegram saying that I had disappeared from Thonon, I wrote a letter to the paper giving my address, and declaring that since so many of my friends were arrested, I had no intention of leaving. In the night of December 21st, my brother-in-law died in my arms. We knew that his illness was incurable, but to see a young life extinguished in your presence, after a brave struggle against death, is terrible. We were both quite broken down. Three or four hours later, as the dull winter morning was dawning, Gendarme came to the house to arrest me. Seeing in what a state my wife was, I asked to remain with her till the burial was over, promising upon my word of honour to be at the prison door at a given hour. But this was refused, and the same night I was taken to Lyon. Elisir Reclus, notified by telegraph, came at once, bestowing on my wife all the gentleness of his great heart. Friends came from Geneva, and although the funeral was an absolutely civil one, which was a novelty in that little town, half of the population was at the burial, to show my wife that the hearts of the poorer classes and the simple Savoy peasants were with us, and not with their rulers. When my trial was going on, the peasants followed it with sympathy, and used to come every day from the mountain villages to town to get the papers. Another incident which profoundly touched me was the arrival at Lyon of an English friend. He came on behalf of a gentleman well known and esteemed in the English political world, in whose family I had spent many happy hours at London in 1882. He was the bearer of a considerable sum of money for the purpose of obtaining my release on bail, and he transmitted me at the same time the message of my London friend that I need not care in the least about the bail, but must leave France immediately. In some mysterious way he managed to see me freely, not in the double-grated iron cage, in which I was allowed interviews with my wife, and he was as much affected by my refusal to accept the offer he came to make as I was by this touching token of friendship on the part of one who, with his wonderfully excellent wife, I had already learnt to esteem so highly. The French government wanted to have one of those great trials which produce an impression upon the population, but there was no possibility of prosecuting the arrested anarchists for the explosions. It would have required bringing us before a jury, which in all probability would have acquitted us. Consequently, the government adopted the Machiavellian course of prosecuting us for having belonged to the International Workingmen's Association. There is in France a law, 
passed immediately after the fall of the commune under which men can be brought before a simple police court for having belonged to that association the maximum penalty is five years imprisonment and a police court is always sure to pronounce the sentences which are wanted by the government the trial began at lyon in the first days of january eighteen eighty three and lasted about a fortnight the accusation was ridiculous as everyone knew that none of the lyon workers had ever joined the international and it entirely fell through as may be seen from the following episode the only witness for the prosecution was the chief of the secret police at lyon an elderly man who was treated at the court with the utmost respect his report i must say was quite correct as concerns the facts the anarchists he said had taken hold of the population they had rendered opportunist meetings impossible because they spoke at each such meeting preaching communism and anarchism and carrying with them the audience seeing that so far he had been fair in his testimony i ventured to ask him a question did you ever hear the name of the international workingmen's association spoken of at lyon never he replied sulkily when i returned from the london congress of eighteen eighty one and did all i could to have the international reconstituted in france did i succeed no they did not find it revolutionary enough thank you i said and turning toward the procureur i added there you have all your case overthrown by your own witness nevertheless we were all condemned for having belonged to the international four of us got the maximum sentence five years imprisonment and a hundred pounds fine the remainder got from four years to one year in fact our accusers never tried to prove anything concerning the international it was quite forgotten we were simply asked to speak about anarchism and so we did not a word was said about the explosions and when one or two of the lyon comrades wanted to have this point cleared up they were bluntly told that they were not prosecuted for that but for having belonged to the international to which i alone belonged there is always some comical incident in such trials and this time it was supplied by a letter of mine there was nothing upon which to base the whole accusation scores of searches had been made at the french anarchists but only two letters of mine had been found the prosecution tried to make the best of them one was written to a french worker who felt despondent and disheartened i spoke to him in my letter about the great times we were living in the great changes coming the birth and spreading of new ideas and so on the letter was not long and little capital was made out of it by the procureur as to the other letter it was twelve pages long i had written it to another french friend a young shoemaker he earned his living by making shoes in his own room for a shop on his left side he used to have a small iron stove upon which he himself cooked his daily meal and upon his right a small stool upon which he wrote long letters to the comrades without leaving his shoemaker's low bench after he had made just as many pairs of shoes as were required for covering the expenses of his extremely modest living and for sending a few francs to his old mother in the country he would spend long hours in writing letters in which he developed the theoretical principles of anarchism with admirable good sense and intelligence he is now a writer well known in france and generally respected for the integrity of his character unfortunately 
At that time he would cover eight or twelve pages of notepaper without having put one single full stop, or even a comma. I once sat down and wrote a long letter in which I explained to him how our thoughts subdivide into groups of sentences, which must be marked by full stops, into separate sentences which must be separated by stops, and finally into secondary ones, which deserve the charity of being marked at least with commas. I told him how much it would improve his writings if he took this simple precaution. This letter was read by the prosecutor before the court, and elicited from him most pathetic comments. "'You have heard, gentlemen, this letter,' he went on, addressing the court. "'You have listened to it. There is nothing particular in it at first sight. He gives a lesson of grammar to a worker. But—' and here his voice vibrated with accents of deep emotion. It was not in order to help a poor worker in instruction which he, owing probably to his laziness, failed to get at school. It was not to help him in earning an honest living. No, gentlemen, it was written in order to inspire him with hatred for our grand and beautiful institutions, in order only the better to infuse him with the venom of anarchism, in order to make of him only a more terrible enemy of society. Cursed be the day that Kropotkin put his foot on the soil of France, he exclaimed, with a wonderful pathos. We could not help laughing like boys all the time he delivered that speech. The judges stared at him, as if to tell him that he was overdoing his role. But he seemed not to notice anything, and, carried on by his eloquence, he went on speaking with more and more theatrical gestures and intonations. He really did his best to obtain his reward from the Russian government. Very soon after the condemnation, the presiding magistrate was promoted to the magistracy of an assize court. As to the procureur and another magistrate, one would hardly believe it. The Russian government offered them the Russian cross of St. Anne, and they were allowed by the Republic to accept it. The famous Russian alliance had thus its origin in the Lyon trial. This trial, which lasted a fortnight, during which most brilliant anarchist speeches, reported by all the papers, were made by such first-rate speakers as the worker Bernard and Emile Gautier, and during which all the accused took a very firm attitude, preaching all the time our doctrines, had a powerful influence in spreading anarchist ideas in France, and assuredly contributed to some extent to the revival of socialism in other countries. As to the condemnation, it was so little justified by the proceedings that the French press, with the exception of the papers devoted to the government, openly blamed the magistrates. Even the moderate Journal des Economistes blamed the condemnation, which nothing in the proceedings of the court could have made one foresee. The contest between the accusers and ourselves was won by us and the public opinion. Immediately a proposition of amnesty was brought before the chamber, and received about a hundred votes in support of it. It came up regularly every year, each time securing more and more votes, until we were released. End of Western Europe Chapter 12